Welcome to the Beltway Broadcast, the premier podcast for the workplace learning and talent development professionals of the Association for Talent Development's Metro DC chapter. We've got some great resources in store for you today. Hello, fellow ATDers. I'm Stephanie Hupka, a chapter past president and a member of the Pod Squad here at the Metro DC chapter of ATD. Hi, everyone. I'm Christina Eanes, the Vice President of Marketing and Communications. We also have Helena Hodges, our Vice President of Finance and Operations, as our producer. For this episode, we are interviewing a learning experience design consultant, mentor, international speaker, author, and a fellow podcaster, Connie Mohammed. Welcome, Connie. Hi, and thank you for having me. Yeah, we are absolutely thrilled that you are here. And before we jump into our conversation for today, we would love it if you take a minute or two and introduce yourself to all of our listeners. Sure. I would say if anyone knows of me, it's probably through the eLearning Coach podcast or my eLearning Coach website where I have hundreds of articles about instructional design, visual design, and related topics. Um. Over the past three years, I started a membership community for instructional designers called Mastering Instructional Design, and that's where I've been putting most of my energy lately. Yeah, you have done an incredible amount of work as far as educating and connecting all of us, especially those of us who call e-learning home. Um, I am one of those people, so I am especially excited to be able to chat with you today. And so... Today, we're talking about developing engaging e-learning. And I'm really excited about this for a few reasons. And one of them is because when it comes to e-learning, a lot of organizations have been doing it for a while. E-learning is not exactly a new term in the industry, although I'm hearing more and more organizations who are getting serious about it, maybe incorporating it for the first time, especially since the pandemic started. But when it comes to the word engaging, there are a lot of definitions to what engaging can be. And so I'd actually love to start there with you. What does it mean to you or in your experience, what has it meant to create engaging e-learning? I think we have to start with the premise that most people in the corporate world are tired of e-learning. They've had yeah. a lot of it. <laughs> so, yes, they have. So... Whereas 15 years ago, I may have done a, a very complex and interesting scenario. Now, sometimes I feel that people just want to um, get something that's very meaningful, that's very motivational, and that is going to be very relevant to them. So I would say over the past few years, my definition of engaging has changed in a way because now I just feel that meaning, you know, really meaningful to their work life is one of the most important things that that I can do. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, especially as far as relevancy goes. And I'm I'm kind of curious to learn from you too. I know in the industry, there's a lot of talk now about moving from what I think almost was called traditional e-learning to things like micro-learning, which mm. often has the same components. But is, is that kind of, you know, as far as the experiences that you've had and what you've seen, how does that play into engagement? Do you find that micro-learning offers more for engagement, maybe playing off the amount of time people have? Or do you find that there are challenges that are inherent with that? 
I think both things are true. I think that um, micro learning is appealing to people because from a cognitive psychology perspective, we more or less are paying attention or um, taking in, acquiring information, building skills for these short time periods. And that's just natural to how we learn. I think it's also somewhat motivating to people because they can do it in small chunks and everyone seems kind of busier than ever. Um, so much for computer saving us time. Yeah, so no kidding. <laughs> so that uh, I, I think micro learning is appealing. I think there are some really big problems with it in the sense that we have to make sure that it's holistic so that if we're using micro learning for short tutorials, how do I do this in Excel? That's one thing. But if we're using it to uh, take someone on a learning journey, you know, a real transformational journey that could last months and months and also be in a blended environment. I just think it's harder to do that. And we have to make sure that people are getting a holistic experience so that one thing that they do, one short lesson is relevant to the, you know, previous or to the next lesson, to the subsequent lesson. So I think some of it depends on whether you're, it's just a completely nonlinear approach and people can get the, build the skills that they want, or if we're really taking them on a consistent journey, that we think about the whole big picture. I love the idea of looking at the big picture and and taking people on a journey. And I've seen a lot, as we all have, right? A lot of different types of e-learning. Before we get into what makes successful e-learning, can you share perhaps what are some common mistakes that you see when people are trying to do e-learning? I think one of the things is starting out in a boring way. You know, there I feel like there's traditional e-learning where you start out with that list of objectives. And I remember learning in graduate school that a list of objectives serves as an advanced organizer so that people have something to um, hang on to, that they, they've already begun to structure their knowledge. However, I think a lot of people start yawning as soon as they see that. And I just question whether we should still be doing that or whether we should be starting out with some kind of uh, meaningful and relevant story that also gets across what will be happening, but, you know, piques their curiosity and um, it is essentially more engaging, which is what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like then uh, some common mistakes are, for one, lack of like a story to connect it all. Yeah, that's one. I mean, the other could be, you know, I'm uh, poor visual design, as you probably know, I'm really into the aesthetics and how that influences learning. Um, another might be that people don't understand that people can only process three to four bits of information at one time. So instead of, you know, really working on just a small amount of skill development, it might be more like fire hose training. I think those are <laughs> some kind of beginner mistakes. Yeah. Well, speaking of beginner mistakes, what are like, what would be the first step for someone who's new to e-learning to, to engage in uh, when they want to go on a journey of creating some e-learning? Mm. I really think the first thing is 
that people have to understand how how we learn. I see so many people. I have a Facebook group for instructional design newbies, and so many people equate e-learning and authoring tools with instructional design. And you know, several times a month, I'm explaining to people. First, you have to understand how people learn. Then you have to understand, you know, do an analysis and really get where they're at and who they are. And you have to build this whole long journey. And you don't just dive into the tools. It's possible that they are not the most important part of it. However, I understand that when people are looking at at job postings, people always, you know, they often say must know this tool or that tool. So I understand where they get that perspective. I'm really glad you mentioned that too, because I find a lot of times, especially when you're thinking about the instructional design of a course, you can almost get very limited by the tools. If you think in terms of what you know the tool, the tool can do, you find yourself developing the same kinds of trainings or courses over and over, which occasionally don't really serve the content very well. You can kind of let what you know how to do drive what you think the content should be presented as. And you know, I've certainly seen some areas where that hasn't worked out quite as well as it might have. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that's the wonderful thing about being around people who are new at it because they don't know what the tools mm. can do. So they may come up with some fantastic yeah. <laughs> idea you never thought of. Um, but if we really stop and, you know, step away, again, looking at the big picture, we might say, oh, well, you know, this is an expert. All they really need is some curated content. They don't even need a course. We just need to to make it easy for them to find the latest thinking, you know, about this scientific process. Or um, maybe they just need to review a PDF document. I mean, I've had people come to me since I work as a freelancer. I've had people come to me many times and I say, well, they could get that on a a PDF document. You know, we don't need, (laughs) we don't need, that's not, awareness is not learning. You know, if we want to really do learning, Mm. it's going to take more than one intervention and it's going to, again, um, perhaps use a lot of different modes. a lot of different media. Uh, it just really depends on what what we're trying to, the skills that we're trying to build. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And in fact, I, I'd kind of love to go back to a word that you used a little while ago that kind of made me smile. And it was the idea of learning being boring, e-learning being boring. And, you know, thinking a little bit about the idea of engagement and making it fun or interesting or relevant or connected into the learner experience. I know one of the challenges that organizations sometimes can face is getting on the same page about what that looks like. You may have a stakeholder group who thinks about it in one way, a group of subject matter experts who want to see something different. Perhaps your instructional design team has a different sense. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or tips on how you can bring people together to determine what engagement is going to look like for them, especially when you have people trying to take the course in a number of different directions, lots of different tools or engagement strategies. How do you bring people together for consensus? Mm -hmm. I think one of the first things you have to do is all, uh, you know, agree on a goal. And the goal is in education, it could be knowledge. 
Often in the in workplace training, it's really skill development, although there's often a, a strong knowledge component like in science and medical. But also, I think one of the simplest things that we can do is just replicate in a safe environment, in an interesting way, what people need to do on the job, allow them to make decisions allow them to face consequences all in a safe environment. I mean, I think games are fantastic, but a lot of times people don't have the tools or the time to create games or perhaps the audience. Uh, a busy doctor probably doesn't feel like playing a game. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so one of the best so things I think we can do is just simply replicate diverse scenarios, give people lots of practice and what they will have to do. And not just simple practice, but where they're really making tough decisions. And I got that decision thing from reading an article by Clark Quinn one time. And he said in, in the article, he mentioned that like, really, isn't that what we're doing? Aren't we just making, you know, in adult workplace training, aren't we just teaching people how to make decisions? Because most people's jobs these days are quite complex. And we're solving problems and we have to make split second decisions. So why not give people a lot of practice on that? And I think that can be pretty engaging just because of its relevance. Yeah. So I'm just curious in, in all of your experience with engaging learning, what is the most creative way you've seen someone engage in e-learning? The most creative way someone else has engaged or the you most creative? or someone else oh. in the e-learning. What's the most creative? Mm. You're like, oh, that's pretty creative, a way to engage your audience. I, I do see a lot of things that I think are creative. And I love the way people in our field help each other and share their work. That's yeah. just so wonderful. But I remember being on a project that was very involved, you know, a very involved story scenario that went on for the entire, you know, it, it was the theme throughout the entire project. And it was a mystery that they had to solve while learning some programming task oh, wow. at the same time. And it was so complex. But I see things like that where, especially back in the uh, old days where there was lots of money to build very extensive, you know, big teams working together and, you know, doing 3D graphics. And I, I've just seen some very involved scenarios that I thought were, uh, fantastic, like a mystery. But I see them all the time. You know, I think, sure, a lot of people are creating the same old traditional stuff, but I also see a lot of, a lot of people creating, um, you know, having new ideas and using the tools that we have in new ways. Yeah, it is really fun to get to see what people are brainstorming and just how far they want to stretch the tools that they have <laughs> available. And in fact, I mean, it kind of gets me thinking about one other area that I feel like we just couldn't wrap up a conversation with you without talking about the visual components of e-learning courses. So much of your work has focused on the visual considerations for learning professionals. In fact, you have a couple of books on the topic, but many instructional designers don't necessarily consider themselves to be graphic designers. So it's not necessarily uncommon for visuals to take a back seat. So I would love to hear from you. What is the real connection between visuals and the learner? And especially, how do visuals impact retention? What's the link there? 
Well, you know, I can't fault the instructional designers who feel that they're not good at visuals because most people weren't taught that. But it's much easier to learn visual design. And I differentiate that from graphic design because graphic design is often more geared towards marketing and we're really geared towards helping Mm -hmm. people retain and transfer, you know, knowledge, building skills. So, um, you know, I think uh, it's easier to learn visual design. There are some basic principles. If people can st- learn them and stick to them, I think they'll really improve. The connection has to do, well, it's, it's multifaceted. There's this aspect of learning that's called um, processing fluency. And if things are easy to understand so that if your visuals are clean and clear and uncluttered and simplistic in a way, um, people will tend to be motivated. It will give your work more credibility and people will be able to understand it more easily. And a lot of theorists think that we, that humans process information on two tracks and that's called the dual coding theory, which I'm guessing you, Mm -hmm. you know, right? So, Oh yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) <laughs> That's another way to connect with the visuals because if people are learning things through an audio script, through audio, and they're also making that connection to a visual, it just puts it on another track so that when it's time to retrieve the information or you know use that skill, if you can't find it through you know the way you stored it through audio, you may find it because you have a picture of it, an image of it in your mind. It could just be even how the text was arranged. So it, it just gives you an additional track for retrieving that you know, information, so for storing it and bringing it back up. Yeah, there is such a huge importance and value to making sure that you have both of those. And, you know, the visual, especially, uh, you know, especially since that is an area where a lot of us perhaps feel like we don't necessarily have the skill set. So I'm also very curious for those of us who might be instructional designers, but are not necessarily graphic designers. Maybe we don't feel like we have that skill set. How do you bridge the gap between our visual skills and what we might need for, you know, a more polished or at least visually effective course? I mean, there are a lot of articles online to read. Um, I give workshops at the conferences sometimes. You know, there are a lot of books around to read mm. about it. I don't think it's that difficult to just clean things up and start getting a little better. I think one of the problems is people will look at their work and compare it to professional graphic designers who, you know, probably work 40 to 50 hours a week on visual design. Sure. But what people, I always recommend yeah. that what people should do is as you learn a new, some new skills and some, um, you know, beginning principles, such as, uh, here's a simple one, you know, um, make sure that the text and the background have high contrast so that people can read it. And then, you know, three months down the road, when you are looking at your work, only compare it to your previous work. Don't compare yourself to professional graphic designers because that'll that will just be too depressing. Oh. <laughs> oh. Well, Connie, you have shared a lot of information with us today, and we hope people will go listen to your podcast to get more information on this. But we are not done with you yet. Uh-oh. I know. We have some rapid fire questions. So each of these, 
Oh, go ahead. I'm ready. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, each question takes less than 60 seconds to respond. So here okay. we go. Give us one book that everyone must read and why. This has become a classic, but it's Julie Dirksen's Design for How People Learn. I think that's the best book for instructional designers to read to learn, understand how people learn. Yes. Oh, nice. What is one tool you can't live without? Personally, I cannot live without Photoshop and Illustrator. They mm. use them every day. Nice. Okay. What is the best piece of advice you have ever been given? When I was in graduate school, my first instructional design professor said, we are the learner's advocates. And that just stuck with me all this time over all the years. Gosh, that is absolutely so important to remember. And perhaps no time more important than some of the conversation that we have had the opportunity to have with you today. I am so glad that you had some time to spend with us to talk a little bit about how we can develop engaging e-learning. This has been a lot of fun to take this time and learn from you. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, Chris and I are so glad that we got to spend this time with you. And of course, spend all of this time with all of our listeners as well. Many thanks to all of you in our community for being here and for listening. And before you go, we have a message from our producer, Helena Hodges. Are you a member of the Metro DC chapter of ATD? We have resources just for you. Go to dcatd.org and select the members only section of resources to access our digital library, member directory, and chapter documents. Would you like to be even more involved in our wonderful community? Go to dcatd.org and click on Volunteer to get started.